Good morning. I'm Anna Marie, and it's time for Focus. It's a closer look at people, places, and things right here in our own backyard. And we're looking at some situations that are involving a lot of people in our community. And our special guest today, we have a couple of guests. We're speaking first with Trevor Henderson, the director of the Opioid Overdose Response and Reduction Program with Metro Public Health Department. Welcome, Trevor. That's a handful. Welcome. Yeah, yeah thank you very much for having us. Uh, so we're going to talk first about uh, what the situation is as far as opioid use, abuse, overdoses, things like that. Tell us what's going on right now, because most of us really have no clue. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think when most people hear about uh, the opioid crisis, I think a lot of people are still thinking uh, about the overprescribing that was happening really mm-hmm. back in, into 2018. Uh, where um, some doctors may have been overprescribing and it was painkillers and opioids at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think one important thing to know is that, that this crisis has really morphed since then. Um, so we're now in a place where where um, illicit opioids are driving our overdose crisis. And, and we've kind of morphed it into an overdose crisis from an opioid crisis. Oh, wow. Um, because it's not a polysubstance problem where we're, we're getting multiple substances driving this. Did the pandemic have something to do with it or did the crackdown on doctors overprescribing? The um, reduction of overprescribing was something that needed to happen. Yeah. Um, um, I think what's unfortunate in that um event was that we were successful largely in, in reducing that, but not really in finding people treatment and help for their addiction. Um, that's a much more complicated thing to take on. So an awful lot of people were left with their addiction um, and um, had to find ways to feed their dependency. Oh, wow. Um, and then um, where the pandemic has come in, that's very hard to I think people are tempted to blame the pandemic on overdoses. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to tie that information together uh, in a meaningful way. What we think happened there was that it amplified a problem that was already there. Yeah. It didn't cause the addiction. Um, right. So I think it added stressors and strains to people living with addiction or potentially living in recovery, and that might have created relapse. Oh, wow. So the crisis has shifted again from... From overprescribing into more of an illicit opioid-driven um, crisis. So fentanyl um, is appearing in around around 80% of our deaths um, at this point in time. And I think Josh will talk more about those numbers in a little while. Yeah, we have another guest a little bit later in the program, Josh Love, an epidemiologist with the Opioid Overdose Response and Reduction Program as well. So what is fentanyl and how is that getting into our hands and what does it do? It's a like most things. It's more complicated than you have time to talk about. Oh, um, sorry. But fentanyl. Um, I mean, it really started out as a, a legitimate um, anesthetic for the hospital setting. So it is much more powerful than heroin, and it's much more powerful than most of the other um, opioid painkillers that that were out there. This then started to become a problem in the early days with being shipped in from China. I mean, if you've got a reasonably good chemist out there, you can get the component pieces and put this together. Mm -hmm. There are multiple variations of it, which also make it very hard to outlaw one fentanyl because then somebody will change the chemical structure and it becomes something else. Oh, wow. But still within that family. So there are multiple variations out there. And as more law enforcement tried to lock that down from being directly shipped in from China, we believe that some component parts of the chemicals were being shipped to other places, being put together and then brought into the country that way. Oh, wow. It's odorless. It's tasteless. 
a, a very small amount of this, uh, a two to three milligrams can be a fatal overdose. That's, wow. that's, uh, there are amazing graphics um, online. Anybody can look this up and you will see a fatal dose of fentanyl beside a penny. And it's, it's enough to fit on Lincoln's beard. Wow. Um, so fentanyl is being added into multiple other drugs. Um, so we believe people may not even know it's in some of the drugs they may be taking. Mm-hmm. Um, we have seen fake pills, fake Xanax, uh, which are not Xanax at all. It's fentanyl. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, we believe, is a big driver of moving a lot of our non-fatal overdoses into the fatal overdose. Was fentanyl the drug that apparently that Michael Jackson had taken? I believe so. Um, I believe Prince maybe uh, was involved in that. Tom Petty. Um, oh wow! So yeah, I think if you do a, an online search, it's it's very easy to find many many stories involving fentanyl. Um, so that's that's a huge problem, mm-hmm. and it's it's much more dangerous than the opioid crisis we had during overprescribing. Wow! What is being done? What can be done? What do we need to do? I wish I could say that there is an easy fix to this. There isn't. Uh, you know, it's, uh, there, there is no vaccine for addiction, which mm-hmm. is the underlying part of this. There are multiple initiatives um, that are ongoing trying to get to people as soon as possible. So, for instance, the Nashville Fire Department, EMS, are currently doing a project where if they have responded to a suspected overdose, they will call back within 72 hours to try and reach out to that patient mm. and, and just gently find out if they're doing okay, if they would like to have further help. If they want further help, they will then hand them off directly to the mental health co-op, who have a small team, who will then try and help them find a suitable treatment program for them. We have recovery navigators that are funded by the state who um, work with multiple emergency departments. So if somebody goes to an emergency department after an overdose, Um, If they ask for that service, they can be connected up with a peer navigator who, again, before they even leave the hospital, can try and connect them up to help. So there are there are multiple initiatives. Uh, There are the regional overdose prevention specialists with Nashville Prevention Partnership who are getting free Narcan kits Mm -hmm. to people. They will train you how to use it. They will give you a kit. So if you or a loved one at home is at risk of an overdose, you may be able to save their life. And you said a recovery navigator, something you said about that struck me, is that if the person who has overdosed asks for that service or asks for that help, I would imagine that that might be an issue that someone who is in the uh, that stage of addiction might not be able to ask for help or might not be ready and, to. Well, now you're touching on where this gets really complicated. It's, um, you know, yeah, you can't force somebody to take this service. So they need to be ready. Um, they, they need to be wanting to engage with these services. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, we can put a lot of resources and the right people at the right place at the right time. Um, but somebody, they need to be ready on their journey mm-hmm. To, to engage with this. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people are not ready. Um, and again, I think that's when they go back into their community. They need to have family. They need to have friends. There needs to be a community of support that better understands addiction to see it as a chronic disease and not a moral failure um, because that further isolates somebody and stigmatizes them. Uh, and and that, that does not help either. What kind of resources are available to family members so they can recognize it and know how to deal with it? Because I know, as you mentioned, the isolation, when your loved one has an addiction, it often causes behaviors that make everybody in the family want to pull away because it, it is toxic for them yeah. as well. So what 
resources are available to families to help them figure out how to deal with it? Well, I think there are a lot of online services. So even things like just spotting behaviors that might be related to addiction, there's a lot of guidance out there. Like, being, like what? Could you give? Um, you have things like the the federal site, the SAMHSA site um, that's out there. No, I mean, um, what are some of the behaviors? Oh, let's, some of the behaviors. Let's give, some, let's give some folks uh, some kind of some basics like right now, because you might open some eyes and uh, people who may not have felt like addressing that yeah. might be able to. I think with the behaviors, it's no surprise to anybody. And these behaviors are not necessarily related to addiction, but may be an indicator of of further conversation. So it can be anything from just self-isolation and withdrawing, um, you know, just feeling that um, they don't have a lot of joy in life and there's nothing to live for. Can get into behaviors around theft uh, and other antisocial behaviors um, just to feed their habit. Um, Not showing up for work. Things like that, just becoming a little erratic. Mm-hmm. Now, these things, again, are not necessarily going to be addiction, but they can um, sometimes feed into that. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, definitely things that you can look out for and have a conversation with family members around. There are experts out there in the community that people can talk to. Um, they can get further advice from as well. Where would someone go, first thing? Well, one of the, the services that we do try to make sure people are aware of is if somebody is ready to ask for help um, around addiction in general, not mm-hmm. necessarily even just drug addiction. Um, there is the Tennessee Red Line, uh, which is a state-funded line. Um, so there's an organization, TADIS, in the community who run that. What is there, it called? Um, TADIS. Um, they're, they're a wonderful organization with a lot of experience around addiction. Um, for somebody who wants to ask for help, mm-hmm. um, they have people staffing that line, mm-hmm. people who understand the process of finding the, the appropriate help. They specialize in giving a warm handoff, so they're not just going to leave you hanging. If you're looking for help, they're going to stay on the line with you until they connect you with somebody that will be able to help. A warm handoff? Mm-hmm. As opposed to a cold handoff? As opposed to I'm just calling this line and you just give me a phone number and now I've got to make another phone call. They will try to stay on the line with you and connect you to the next person. This is very much um, something you will see across the whole um, overdose response in general is trying to make sure that people are not just left hanging calling another number. Uh, it's the same with our fire department. Um, if if they do a call back and somebody wants to talk to mental health co-op, they will do a warm handoff in that mm-hmm. regard. They will stay on the line with you to make sure that you get to the next person. That makes sense because it's frustrating and feels defeating when you're trying to just call a government agency or you're trying to call and get information about your cable bill or something when you got a call and got a call and got a call. Yes, addressing walking through the barriers with somebody is is huge in this regard, and and with a lot of other chronic illnesses, this is this this is nothing new. I mean, other illnesses have been using this model uh, to great success. Yeah, and so for family members, are they able to access through Tennessee Redline? Is that what you called it? Um, Tennessee Redline. You can't call them on behalf of somebody else mm-hmm. um, okay. because again, then you're trying to put them into treatment without their permission. So you really need to get the person who's ready for that conversation to talk directly with them. Okay. Um, Now, TADIS, I'm sure, have ways where you could um, approach them and ask for general information. Mm -hmm. Things, if you're a family member and you're concerned uh, about somebody in your family who may be using drugs Mm -hmm. um, and they're not ready for treatment, again, you can approach Nashville Prevention Partnership and engage with one of their They're called ROPES, the Regional Overdose Prevention Specialists. Mm -hmm. 
Again, they will teach you how to spot a potential overdose, how to respond to that overdose, mm-hmm. and give you a Narcan kit, which you then can keep at hand and potentially save a life. And the Narcan kit does what? Uh, a Narcan kit is a, a medication that reverses an opioid overdose. It, it has to be an opioid overdose. So it'll temporarily um, take somebody out of that overdose. Most of the kits are a nasal injector, mm-hmm. um, so it's very easy to administer. And uh, so you mean taking them out of the overdose, uh, which uh, the overdose is about to what do what to them to kill them? Um, unfortunately, where we are today with, with fentanyl in the community, yes, that's become much more likely. So what um, does it do? Does it just put you to sleep? or I mean, like The, the opioid it's, itself um, will suppress your breathing um, and to the point that you will just eventually stop just breathing. Just stop breathing. It's maybe the very simplistic way of saying it. So the Narcan knocks the opioids off the, the um, opioid receptors in your brain temporarily. I, again, you can go back into that overdose. So... In that moment where somebody gives you the Narcan, you really want to be calling 911 and getting first responders help or getting the person to the emergency department for the mm-hmm. appropriate care. Okay. Okay. And uh, you said it's... Nashville Preve- Prevention Partnership. Nashville um, Prevention Partnership. Yeah. Okay. We'll put that information on our Focus Facebook page so people can check that out. Nashville Prevention Partnership. I would imagine that would be a resource where uh, a good starting place for a lot of conversation, a lot of information that families need. Right. And those regional overdose prevention specialists also have a lot of knowledge around the wider systems that are available and and we'll be able to provide information on that also. Are there meetings for people who are in recovery from addictions other than alcohol? There are Narcotics Anonymous meetings around the city as well. Um, There is a a Narcotics Anonymous website where you can locate where those meetings are are happening near you. Mm -hmm. Do, do, Do those seem to help the way that they do with alcohol addiction? Yes, there's there's a lot of conversation around this in, in, with, the, with addiction in general, that not every model fits everybody's journey. So for some people, the abstinence model may work better for them, which is typically what fits more under the Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous umbrella. Mm-hmm. Um, not exclusively, but typically that's been... The abstinence that model being... Which is, um, I don't want to do these drugs or this alcohol anymore. I'm going to find a support group who hold me accountable, and I am just going to work to step away from that. Just um, completely step away from it. Yeah. That is not appropriate for everybody. So other people, you would be looking for medically assisted um, treatment in that regard. So oh. um, buprenorphine, suboxone, those kinds of things where um, on, a, on a regular basis you will show up and to a clinic, see a doctor, and they will give you one of these medications. What do which, those medications do? Again, simplifying it somewhat is that they will take the edge off of your, your cravings mm-hmm. um, for opioids in this case, and um, they will help stabilize you. They will help you just function in your life and give you enough space to start to do the work that you need to do with your addiction. So it's it's medically supervised, all of those pieces. If you're just joining us, I'm Anna Marie, and this is Focus. We're talking about the opioid overdose crisis, and we're talking with Trevor Henderson. He's the director of the Opioid Overdose Response and Reduction Program with the Metro Public Health Department. I knew somebody before who was taking some drug. He had to go maybe once a week or I don't know how often. And he said it kind of, you said knock the edge off, but he said it kind of kept him from feeling the high if he took the drug. Do we have? Yes, there are, there are medications um, out there. And again, there's, there's a variety. There's everything from one that people would know more about probably is methadone, which has been around for a while. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then there are new ones that are continually under development, which are slow-release opioids. And then, yes, there are some that have ability to um, stop you from feeling the same high that you would if you do take um, illicit substances again. Mm-hmm. If you're living with addiction and you're struggling to show up to things on a regular basis mm-hmm. and, and, and all of those barriers that we talked about, you right. know, that that ability to show up on a regular basis to the doctors, I mean, that's People need to understand that's a difficult thing, and I would hope that anybody who's on that journey has a community of support around them to help them, to help them succeed in that. Yes, exactly. What other information do you feel like we need to get out to the public? What other information do you think? Like, I wish people knew about this. I wish we could get more support for this. I wish we could do this differently. This crisis has gotten worse, and we need to refocus and get back to dealing with this in a comprehensive manner. Mm-hmm. Um, it's There is no comprehensive system built for an addiction crisis out there, and we, we need to develop that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that will require multiple agencies and groups collaborating more and more with the community. Mm-hmm. Understanding addiction in the community, understanding this as, as a disease, um, is, is really crucial to make sure that we're not further stigmatizing somebody with addiction and making them feel even more disconnected and isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, that's taking us the wrong way. Um, so engaging with education in the community. The other big thing that's on our mind all the time is just the pervasiveness of fentanyl in the community. Um, you know, if, if anybody is using um, any drugs pretty much at this point in time recreationally, they just need to be very careful. Again, it does not take a lot of fentanyl to be mixed in with something, and you may not know it's there. We, we believe that quite a few of our deaths, the people were totally unaware that this was in their drug. Uh, and this goes right down to fake pills, where somebody, a friend, shares what they think is a Xanax with another friend with good intentions, mm-hmm. and it turns out that that is not what was in that pill. Um, so unfortunately, we're seeing way too much of that. Why would a drug dealer put fentanyl in to a fake pill. I mean, why would somebody put it into other drugs? Well, I mean, I think we're stepping into speculation here to, to some degree. Um, but that said, it's, uh, it is more addictive. It is more powerful. There is a, a wider profit margin. If I have somebody who maybe uses cocaine and feels that they can, by and large, manage that habit um, and still maintain their life, if fentanyl gets mixed in with that and all of a sudden you develop an opioid addiction, well, you may lose control of that ability. Yeah. Is that beneficial to people who are maybe selling drugs? Possibly. Gotcha. Um, again, I think it's just become pervasive. It's easier to ship. Um, it's odorless, tasteless. So even though it's such a tiny amount, you can become addicted to it. And are there people who are buying fentanyl specifically knowing it's fentanyl or is this usually something that's kind of sneaked in? This steps out a little bit of our public health expertise, but in some conversations that we have had with law enforcement, yes, we believe people, some people are now seeking the fentanyl. And again, and then there are a lot of people who we believe don't know it's there at yeah. all. So yeah. it's it's both. Would you like to introduce our next guest and tell us what he's able to bring to the table in this I'll introduce Josh Love. He's the epidemiologist on our program. And uh, Josh um, has done amazing work in building an overdose surveillance system for Davidson County from from the ground up to really help us understand more and more the nature of what exactly we're dealing with with this problem. And so Josh um, has more statistics and data around this, which um, people might find helpful. And why is it important that we know exactly what we're dealing with? 
Again, I think when we talk about the opioid crisis, people are still thinking about overprescribing. And I think the data is where we find out. So, for instance, in the toxicology from um, death reports, that's where we find out what was actually in somebody's system. And so that's where we find out that this crisis has morphed and continues to morph and change. If we were still trying to address the crisis that was 2017, 2018 around there, we're aiming our efforts at the wrong target, if you will. Great introduction. So let's go ahead and talk to our next guest, Josh Love. Welcome. Happy to be here. Now, the numbers guy. Yay. Oh, great. (laughs) You get invited to a lot of parties and they go like, tell us some stories. Tell us some number stories. Just usually over in the corner by myself. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So tell us what is it that we need to know about the statistics about the opioid crisis now? What's going on? I've been working on this particular issue for some time now. And as Trevor talked about earlier, we've developed an overdose surveillance system. So tracking overdose activity, um, at least going back at least five years. Mm -hmm. So looking at both fatal, -fatal, non-fatal activity that's occurring in the county. And what we've seen is we've been on a steady increase, at least going back five years. Heading into 2020, we were anticipating about a 20% increase across all of our data system. Yeah. So we track um, EMS activity in the community. So anytime the EMS responds to a suspected overdose. Which is the emergency medical services. So when the ambulance comes out and um, are under the impression there's an overdose occurring, um, we're able to access that data and look at um, trends and activity therein. Also, we monitor emergency department activity related to overdoses. And then finally, through our medical examiner, looking at those fatal overdoses are occurring. So taking all that into account, yeah, we've been on a steady increase for a couple of years now. Heading into 2020, um, we are anticipating about a 20% increase overall. We observe more close to a 30% increase. We, as Trevor had talked about, we attribute that again to the associated effects of a pandemic and social isolation and lockdown and so forth, but also the ever-increasing presence of fentanyl in the community and that being detected in toxicology reports. Fentanyl is, again, it's, it's, it's very deadly in terms of what we've seen in Davidson County. For example, 2016, take all the overdose deaths that occurred, about 20% of them had fentanyl that was detected in the toxicology reports. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to 2020, that was approximately 80%. Oh my God. And so it's just taken over. And that crossover, if you will, tended to happen about late 2018. That's when we saw fentanyl take over at least the toxicology reports. Mm-hmm. And we're keeping pace so far this year, unfortunately. It continues to be detected at a high rate in those toxicology reports. That information helps us know where the resources need to go and how the issue needs to be addressed. And that's um, the importance of monitoring um, dr- the drug or substance trends. I mean, just the variety of drugs or substances that we detect in our surveillance systems is overwhelming. I mean, you talk about what we normally detect. We're talking, of course, fentanyl, you know, your prescription opioids, heroin, methamphetamine, cocaine, benzodiazepines, muscle relaxants. And then we're not even talking about emerging substances that we've heard reports of in other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. There's a few nasty ones out there that I hope do not come to Davidson County. Like what? Do you Can, can you give us an idea? So two that immediately come to mind are xylazine and isotonitazine. Mm-hmm. I hope I'm pronouncing those correctly, but essentially, for example, isotonitazine is more potent than fentanyl itself. Oh my God. 
um, they began to detect that. I believe it was about the midpoint of last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, thankfully, we haven't seen it crop up in our toxicology reports here. But that's, for example, that's really an extra layer to this epidemic is mm-hmm. just new drugs coming on the scene and then making their way to Nashville. And then also talking about fentanyl analogs, which Trevor um, briefly mentioned. So there's different types or analogs of fentanyl. They're very dangerous because, well, fentanyl in itself is already dangerous. Mm-hmm. But analogs vary in potency. They mimic the effects of fentanyl. But what is an analog? Like a different recipe for it, basically? The chemical structure varies slightly compared to fentanyl itself. Okay. But they're very deadly because they vary in potency. Um, so you throw that in there. So even someone who goes, oh, I use fentanyl and spiking my pills, and uh, then you get something different and you might end up killing somebody. Absolutely. And so some fentanyl analogs are about the same potency as fentanyl itself. Others, such as carfentanyl, are 50 to 100 times more potent than fentanyl. Oh, I think it's commonly referred to as elephant tranquilizer. Oh, my gosh. Or at least it's as potent as that. It's really yeah. nasty stuff. And so we've seen that a few, a handful of times mm-hmm. here and there over the last few years. But we do monitor these. We've detected 10 distinct fentanyl analogs in Davidson County amongst, you know, when we're reviewing toxicology mm-hmm. reports. Yeah, wow. it's just another layer of different things coming into the county that are deadly for folks and trying to stay on top of that. We're always trying to stay ahead of the curve on this, but it's constantly evolving. It's not something for us as epidemiologists to rest on our laurels with trends going back a few years. Trends and population characteristics associated with this crisis change monthly, quarterly. We're not even talking about geospatial characteristics. So what parts of the county are experiencing more activity than others. Mm-hmm. Right. But then you throw in, you know, we're doing what we can on the public health side of trying to understand what's going on, where it's going on, to what degree. Yeah. Treatment and prevention over here. But then we're not, you know, in control of what's coming into the county or not. Right. So that's like when we're examining temporal trends. So let's look at what happened the same time last year. We saw a spike in activity on this date. Well, can we say with reasonable confidence that that's going to occur again? Probably not. Unless it's like, so for example, summers and the holidays at the end of the year, New Year's Eve, mm-hmm. kind of tend to see spikes in activity. Apart from that, sometimes we'll see spikes in activity on a Tuesday in February. Yeah. And what do you make of that? Another part of our job is logging those events so we can always look back and see if there's something we can learn from it. Mm-hmm. What so- separated that particular event from what we were observing? Yeah. What made that happen, if you can, and what might make it happen again so you can try and anticipate. Do you find that Davidson County differs in the types of drugs that other counties are taking, or does, again, does this just vary? At least here in Davidson County, fentanyl is the main story. Um, It's killing people. It's dangerous. We need to curtail that as much as we can. Fentanyl, stimulants, cocaine, and methamphetamine are seeing a slight rise as Mm -hmm. well, although to a lesser degree than fentanyl. And then benzodiazepines are starting to come on the scene as well. Which is, what is that? Yeah, so So common benzodiazepines are commonly known to us are Valium and Xanax. So that's kind of popular. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then also, so that's becoming popular. So people are either knowingly taking that or, as Trevor was saying, fentanyl fake fake Xanax pills, which are actually fentanyl. Mm-hmm. So based on the numbers, based on what we know today, what are your thoughts on the rest of this year? Yeah, so that's a great point. Um, again, when we looked at 2020, we were anticipating a certain increase compared to 2019. Right. 
I think COVID definitely amplified what we were seeing. So I think we're still continuing on that upward trajectory pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. So for example, through last week, we are keeping pace with 2020 still. Mm. Uh, we're outpacing it in terms of overdose deaths currently. Wow. Emergency department visits are slightly up. Um, EMS activity is about at same, you know, on par with what, where they were last year. So as we are analyzing the data, reporting out and getting information to partners and stakeholders, it might seem like, hey, these aren't the drastic increases that we we're seeing last year. But keep in mind, we're keeping pace with what was the most active year, at least in Davidson County, since we began tracking this epidemic. So 2020 was the worst year that we have tracked. And we're, we're, we're right, right there, there with yeah. Josh Love, epidemiologist with the Opioid Overdose Response and Reduction Program with the Metro Public Health Department. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And we're going to get Trevor back, Trevor Henderson, the director of the Response and Reduction Program, to give us a little closing word here. Any final thoughts, anything I've neglected to ask that you feel is important to add? Yeah, this, this crisis has got worse, unfortunately, um, but there, there is help available to anybody who is looking to, to engage with that. Um, there are multiple doors they can enter and find people that will help them. Um, so please reach out. Um, there are links out there. You can contact our program as well and reach out to us, and we'll try and get people to the right place. Again, there is there's no um, vaccine to help with addiction, unfortunately, so this is not an easy fix. And uh, anybody who's living and struggling with addiction out there, please reach out to somebody. There are people out there to try and help you. Trevor Henderson and Josh Love, thank you for joining us from the Opioid Overdose Response and Reduction Program with the Metro Public Health Department. We're going to put all the links on our Focus Facebook page. Make sure you join us again next week. I'm Anna Marie, and that's Focus.